0: We're going to open our Bibles uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where today uh, we're going to finish this chapter by beginning to look at at the third area of discipleship growth that that Paul is going to address kind of in this section of the letter. So if you remember, in in this letter to the church in Thessalonica, Paul uh, begins the first part of it. By uh, really, it's it's kind of twofold. It's a defense of of the gospel, but also a defense of who Paul is. Right. So, uh, if you remember uh, this church uh, when it was started, Paul was there in Thessalonica, proclaimed the gospel to them. They received the good news, both Jew and Gentile. And, and pretty quickly following that, man, uh, persecution arises because uh, Jews and Greeks alike they don't like that uh, what's going on with this group of people and so they go to the leaders and they say, hey, uh, they are proclaiming a different king other than Caesar. And so, uh, man, the Roman government has to snuff that out. And so they start persecuting this group of people. And it gets so bad that Paul is removed under the cover of night. And so that's created some issues where some people are saying, hey, Paul didn't really care about you. He left when times got hard. Uh uh, also, because of that, you can't really trust him. And if you would just turn back to the old things that you used to believe, or, as we're going to see today, if you will turn to maybe some uh, avenues of escapism in terms of your theology of what happens when Jesus returns, uh, what's going to happen is, man, your life's going to ease up a little bit you're going to have to you're going to have actually real hope but actually it's a false hope and so uh paul spends the first part of this letter really defending who he is as a follower of jesus his authority uh, uh that he came by the authority of god to proclaim this good news uh that he is an apostle uh and that his words hold the very authority of jesus uh and then secondly uh, that meant that the gospel is the only thing that brings life. And then what he does, uh, we, we see it at the end of chapter three, moving into chapter four, is he begins to exhort or encourage and, and push this young church to continue on To actually live out their faith in the gospel. And so at the end of chapter 3, Paul shares in his prayer. He says, look, though I'm absent from you, he said, my prayer daily is that, that I could see you face to face so that I could supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul has received a report from Timothy, and Timothy said, "Hey, these are all the amazing things that are going on in Thessalonica. Man, they're they're doing this 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 really well." And Paul, man, he addresses that and he, uh, man, he uh, encourages the church in that. But also he said, "Hey, here's some areas that they're wrestling with. Here's some questions that they're asking uh, in, in the midst of what they're going through." And so Paul, as he prays, he says, well, I'm not going to waste any time. Even though I can't be face to face with them, I'm going to write to them and I'm going I'm to uh, equip them. I'm going to pour into them. And so uh, he moves in chapters four and five to uh, three areas of what we would term as, um, what we've termed as ethics or uh, moral principles that are to govern their behavior. And so Paul says, hey, uh, if we're talking about the gospel lived, this is how it looks in these three areas. So we may see, weakness, we may see wrestling, maybe, you've, uh, maybe you're have maybe you ignorant to a certain thing, or maybe you just need some equipping, and this is what he seeks to do in these three areas. And so what he, he's trying to do is he's saying, hey, I want to equip you, church, in the face of persecution, in the face of pressure, in, in the face of this temptation to return what you once worshipped, or to uh, some avenue of maybe false teaching that'll just make you feel a little better in the moment. Paul addresses these things. And so area one, as we saw, was focused on the call to abstain from sexual immorality. And then area two, that we looked at last week, was what it means to love one another, right? Paul says, hey, as the church, we are to be a people that love one another well. And so Paul engages this portion of the text by doing three things. He encourages the church. He says, hey, I, I don't even need to write to you about this because when I, uh, what I've heard is that you are loving one another really well. You're, you're doing such a good job at it that other churches around Macedonia are being encouraged by it and it's motivating them to love each other well. And then secondly, he exhorts them. He seeks to motivate them, right, which is kind of Paul's M.O. He says, hey, while you're doing this, it's good, but keep going. He says, I want you to love one another more and more and more. Seek that. And then lastly, he admonishes, he sends a warning to this church because what's happened is that some have stopped working and they and because they've stopped working, they've quit really acting out in love towards one another. And so Paul says that we are to love in ways that lead to both accountability and proclaim our secure hope in Christ's finished work on our behalf. He says, here's three ways you do that. He says, one, you live a quiet life. So in the midst of all this, and we're about to dive into it where we're going in the text today, man, some believe that Jesus was either about to return or even others who believe he's already come so it doesn't even matter and so they had stopped working or they were so excited about that prospect that they quit doing and living their daily life, right? And so Paul says, hey, live a quiet life. What he means by that is live a level-headed life. Don't not be excited, but, man, make sure your focus is on what Jesus has called you for today, right? Jesus would say in Luke, like, don't worry about tomorrow, right? Uh, uh, what you will eat, what you will wear, right? Uh, in James, we say, man, he says, don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough worries on its own. Next, he says, in light of this, another way that you can love one another well is by minding your business, Right? And so we looked at that like, hey, as God's people, uh, uh, man, it, laziness leads to meddlesomeness, right? So when we get lazy in life, when we don't work hard, when we don't live daily life in light of the gospel, what we tend to do as a fallback is, hey, I want to know what they're doing, and what's going on in their life. Give me that juicy goss, right? Like, I need it. And then lastly, he says, no, and the other way to, uh, man, to fix this is just work really hard. As God's people, we should be the hardest workers because guess what? Everything ultimate has already been paid. So following this, Paul is now going to move into his last area of teaching that that really focuses on two questions that were causing not only a lot of wrestling in the church in Thessalonica, but they were actually attributing, I believe, to some of the issues they were having with not loving one another well. And so what I want to do is I'm going to begin our time by laying out the two questions, and then I'm going to talk about the reality of where we're going to look over the next two weeks, and then we're going to dive in, okay? And you'll understand why I'm going to lay all this out once we dive in here in a moment. So uh, first, the two questions. The first question that we're going to see that these people are wrestling with, that Paul's going to seek to address and answer, is what happens to the dead when they die? So what happens to the dead when they die? Specifically, kind of that question they're wrestling with within that is, do they have hope? Do they have hope? Because if Jesus is going to return, have they been left out? Because, uh, you know, some that had heard that Jesus is going to return, they've died. And so they're like, well, do they even have any hope? Are they being left out of all this? What happens when you die? And then the second question is, when is it's kind of two-part. When is and what happens at the end of the world? Pretty big questions, right? Well, what happens when you die? And, and, and is there hope in that? And then when and what happens at the end of the world? And so with those two questions before us, let me lay out the reality of where we're heading today. Well, not just today. Today and next week. I tried to fit all this into one, and I just couldn't. Okay? And so... Uh, For the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at, because as a church, again, we preach exegetically, which means we just go through the Bible. We're going to be looking at what we would term as eschatology. So eschatology is the study of death, judgment, and the end times. And so when you hear that. When people hear this topic, when we hear uh, I man questions or sermons about eschatology or conversations uh, about the end times or death and judgment, uh, when this topic is being taught, uh, I believe that you see two common things happen. For some, some people get really, really excited about it, right? Like how many of you you're kind of like, "Oh man, I'm excited. I'm I'm ready to see what's going to happen. I'm ready to see what's going to be shared." Now I think, to to a certain degree, that's a good thing because I believe because it's in the Bible, like we should be excited about these things. When when it comes to the Word of God, the Word of God should excite us, and again, uh, this text should move us to uh, it should move us to uh, encouragement, it should move us to hope, and it should move us to be motivated in light of the text. And so, some people get really excited, but what I mean by excitement in terms of this common response, is that they get a little too excited. Mainly because this is the only thing they study in all the Bible. Like, you know, like they have commentary after commentary. All they want to do is talk about the charts and the timelines and the moons and the colors and the and the this and the that and everything. And so when this topic arises, they get really pumped about it because, I mean, everything they do, everything they think about, everything is all in regards to this. And I think, again, I want you to hear me. I think it's good to study the scriptures. And today, I'm not here to diminish your excitement, okay? Now, I will say maybe kind of what Paul says last week, like, have a level head. Like, like, don't become so excited that you forget what day-to-day life looks like in the now, that you're so consumed with Christ's return, that you forget to live today. And so I'm not here to diminish your excitement. I believe these are things we should be excited about, but I want us to focus in on the text, you see, I said there's another response. While some get excited, I believe that everyone, uh, to some degree, either gets uncomfortable. How many of you, when you heard eschatology and end times and judgment, you were just like, ah, I don't know if I should have come today. I'm definitely not coming next week. Uh, like, you, it, it makes you uncomfortable because you're like, ah... I don't really, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna do this, like there's, uh, like, uh, this has been either uh, shoved down my throat as a child, or man, it just makes me just really uncomfortable because people get angry about it, they argue about it, and I don't like that. Maybe for others of you, you're like, well, I don't really wanna do that because it's just a little, it's just too confusing. There's too much going on, right? You open, uh, man, texts that talk about end times, you open the book of Revelation or Daniel, the, you start reading, you're like, what in the world is happening here? To a degree, like, there is mystery. There are things that that we're just not going to fully understand and grasp. But maybe some of you, like, when you hear this, maybe you get a bit defensive. Maybe for you, like, as you heard that, uh, maybe you said, well, you better hold my beliefs or else. And so my, as we share that reality, my hope is that, man, that over the next two weeks we would simply walk through the text. And we would walk through te- the text in ways that bring you hope, motivation, and encouragement to both your heart today and your life and living each and every day. Again, Paul is writing this so that they might live differently in their lives now in light of the gospel. And I believe it's the same call for us. Now let me just say three more things about this, because I believe because of the concerns that kind of surround everything we're going to be walking through, I believe they have to be shared up front. Okay. First, I am not an expert on the end times. I'm not going to make that claim at all. Okay. You may know more about whatever particular part of this than I do, and I'm okay. Like I want to learn, I want to go, but I'm not an expert. I don't believe anyone can ultimately be a full expert because we're man. There's some things that are just mystery. Second, and I think this is really, really important, when we talk about specifically the end times, these are open-handed. This is an open-handed issue, okay? What I mean by that is there are certain closed handed things in Scripture that, man, they don't change, right? Like the deity of Christ never changes. The Trinity never changes, right? Like those things don't change. And we stand upon the salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's it. It's not based on works. Close-handed thing. But then there's other things throughout Scripture that are open-handed. And this is one of them. And so what I mean is that today as I share, guess what? You can disagree with me and that is okay. Like, let me say it again. It's okay. I'll say it a third time. It's okay, right? Because I can't tell you like how many times we've done basics classes and different things and this, you know, we share open it and it's like, no, that's okay. And then boom, they're gone. And I'm like, wait, you said it was Okay. It's okay. But you see, I think the sad reality is that, man, just from my experience as a pastor in the church, is that this is one of the theological issues that divides more people in the church than close-handed issues actually do. I think there's really, from my experience, there's been three things that have caused people to leave. One, uh, your view on salvation, right? You know? Is God the primary igniter? Is human responsibility, free will, God's sovereignty, all, you know, the second thing, and I don't, is, man, where do you fall on the political spectrum? And, and then the third thing is, man, what are your beliefs on the end times? That's kind of been the that's the triad if I was gonna look at it. And man, as I think about this, like this theological matter, it divides those in the church so much. So, so much more than actually close-handed things do. You see, people like people leave churches all the time over silly arguments, and if you stay in church any length of time, you're going to see it. And so, what I did, I looked up just a few like few crazy reasons people have left churches, and I'll just list a few. One, none of these are in our church, okay? Uh, an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. People are, like, someone, this is a story, this is a true story. Someone came and said, hey, I think there's a scripture in the Bible that says people that lead worship, their beards aren't supposed to be over an inch and a half. And they said, what? They didn't know where the scripture was. They just believed it was, and they argued back and forth so much so that the person left. They're like, well, if they're not going to cut their beard, like, I'm done, right? There was a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. Like, now that, like, they've got bigger issues than just that issue if they're arguing that. But like, that that was the issue. Should we do something that promotes life or should we just make it a place where we bury people? And it was, it, people divided and left the church over it. There was an argument that people left the church over whether to use the term pot luck or pot blessing. Because some people argued that if you use the word luck, you are gambling. And that that wasn't okay. Because you were, man, we can't leave it to luck. And so it has to just be a blessing. Like you read, you're like, really? You see, while we, we, we can giggle at this and say, man, that's silly. Man, my experience has been that people will hold liberty for things that the Bible explicitly says are wrong, but will leave at the first sign that you disagree with them when it comes to the details and timelines of the end times. Like there could be a church that says it's gospel plus works, but they believe in this view of the the thousand year reign of Christ. And so I stay there or whatever it is. Like you fill in the blank and guess what? Like it's not good. Like my beliefs about the end times might not 100% line up with yours, nor yours with mine. But what I want to encourage us to do is to hold grace for one another. To have good conversations and to make the gospel the main thing. And and then, uh, more than that, that we would make sure that we're 100% aligned on the close-handed things. Those things that don't change. Those things that we're like, nope, that there's no debate about that. And then lastly, when working through the text, my goal over the next two weeks is to just share simply what the text says rather than attempting to attach anything else to it, Okay. Matt Chandler said this about the series that they did in Revelation. I think it holds true for the text we're going to be walking through. It says, when studying things like this, we have to remember that it cannot mean for us what it didn't mean for them. You see, this was a letter written at a specific time for a specific people who were facing a specific set of circumstances. And we do poor exegesis when we place things upon the text that are simply not there. And so with that being said, let's look now at question number one, which is what happens to the dead. Do the dead have hope when they die? By reading verses 13 through 18. It says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus... Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, so beginning in verse 13, Paul moves to an area of concern in the church of Thessalonica that had probably been told to him by Timothy upon his return from meeting with this young church. And so, what has happened is these people, after Paul left, they have been taught things about Christ's return. And, and as we see throughout the New Testament, there was a common phrase that was used. Uh, you see it all through the New Testament that right that Jesus' return is what? His return is soon, right? Like even Jesus in in the in in the his in Revelation, he says, "Behold, I am coming soon. I am coming quickly. Like, be ready, be prepared." So we get this term, and what's happened is these people that believe, man, well, soon. Guess what? What do we think of when we think of soon? Tomorrow, if not, if you have children, soon is now, right? And if it's not now, it's gonna. It better be in thirty seconds, or I'm gonna ask again, right? You've got going car rides, and it's like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Like growing up, like you know. Uh, like, it, it was, like, that, that's what I thought. Like, you know, five minutes was an eternity. And these people have gone to believe, like, okay, if he says that he's returning soon, if Christ is going to return soon, then it, it must be happening tomorrow. And if it's not tomorrow, it's got to be the next day. You see, but soon is a relative term because, guess what? Every day we are one day sooner to Jesus' return. And so the result of this is while they heard, uh, while they heard this, uh, some who heard had since died. So people had heard, man, Jesus is coming soon. And they believed it. And then they gave them hope and encouragement, which it should. And then guess what? Those people died. And so the living were looking at it and say, well, where's their hope? They died before he came. Did they miss out on the return? Did they, do they not have any hope? Where are they now? Fear and ignorance have led them to believe that they had missed out on the promise. And so Paul takes some time to write to the church regarding this matter so that they would, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Which is a really, really weird way to talk about death, right? I don't know if you're, like I've never when talking about someone dying or death said, yeah, they're just asleep that's not a common phrase you so like it seems odd that paul would use it and yet he does he uses this term asleep three consecutive times in verses 13 14 and 15 to describe the dead and so so why would paul use this term when talking about the dead well i think we have to first know what he's not saying and then we can understand what he actually is saying you see, what Paul is not saying is that those who have died are not really dead, but only unconscious, right? He's not saying, well, they, they didn't really die. They're just, they're just asleep. They got knocked out. They're in a coma. Like, that was actually one of the arguments that, that Jesus didn't actually resurrect, right? He didn't really die on the cross. He just kind of went into a coma, or he was just unconscious, and they after three days, he woke up. But that's not, like, we know that's not what happened. Like, Jesus actually died. That's not what Paul's saying here, but Jesus would actually use the same descriptor in Mark five. If you know in Mark five, Jesus is uh, he, he's walking along, and someone comes to him and says, "Hey, my daughter is sick, and she's about to die." Right. So Jesus is headed to the house, and what happens is this woman who's had a physical ailment her whole life reaches out and touch in faith, touches Jesus's robe, and she's healed. And it says that man Jesus knew that power left him, and so he stops. And says who? Who just touched my rope and it took a moment but the woman finally came forward and he says hey your faith has made you well and then what happens is following that because of the delay Jesus starts heading out and they say hey don't worry about it you missed your opportunity the girl's dead and Jesus keeps going and he walks into the house and everyone's grieving and mourning and crying and he says this he says well guess what she's not dead she's just asleep And everyone looks at him and they start laughing. They're like, man, you're a crazy person. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus goes to the girl and he says words, Talitha kum, which means little girl, rise up. And she rises up. Now this girl was dead. She wasn't asleep. And the reason that I believe Jesus does this and the reason that Paul is speaking the way he does when they speak of sleeping here is that they are not redefining death in the physical sense. But they are introducing the truth that the gospel redefines death in the eternal sense. Meaning that while all die, the gospel defeats death and therefore it is only temporary. And so this is why Paul calls death simply sleep. Because it is a person at rest in body. Their soul is with Christ. Waiting as we will see for the resurrection. Uh, as I studied this week, I found out that that's where, like, this idea of sleep is where we get the word cemetery from. The word cemetery simply means a sleeping place. Because as Christians, when we uh, view as a, a, a cemetery, what we see it, man, it's just a temporary place. It's a sleeping place. And so Paul is ta- taking time to teach about Death. So that those to whom he is writing and to us today would first, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. What he's saying is that, hey, I want you to have knowledge. I want you to have understanding, maybe not a full understanding of all the details. But also, he says, the second thing I want, he said, I want you to be able to grieve well. Hey, man, I man, I love that. I love that, that, Paul, I love that, that within the gospel, like, there's, there's still room and, and it, that it's okay to grieve. And you know why it's okay to grieve? Because it wasn't meant to be. When we grieve, it's this reality uh, uh, and this longing, and I believe, in every heart. Whether you understand the good news of the gospel or not, like, uh, and we're going to get to it in just a second, man, we all grieve. Because within us, because we're made in the image of God, because we once uh, were with, like at Adam, we were without sin. Like, we don't know what that's like, but like in the beginning, man was created without sin. And there's something inside of us that says, hey, this isn't right. It's not okay. And, and so Paul is taking the time to say, hey, I, I want you to understand, like, I want you to grieve Well. Like, like, the, the, he doesn't say that as believers we cannot grieve at all, but that our grief is not like those who do not understand the hope of Christ. You see, while they grieve with no hope, you see, if you if you d- don't know the grace of Jesus, if you haven't been transformed by the blood of Christ, man, you have no hope in death. Man, you can seek hope all you want and everything that you want in this life, but guess what, man, one day there will be no hope. Because guess what? We just, like, Jesus is hope. Jesus is peace. You see, but we, if you're a follower of Jesus, you grieve knowing that through Christ you have the foundation of hope that secures not only your today, but your eternity and promises resurrection. Because Jesus died and God did not leave him in the grave but resurrected him, we have the hope that all who are in Christ will not be left out but will be brought with him. Verse 14. And then in verses 15-18 through Paul expounds upon the reality of this hope by talking about what will happen to both the living and the dead when Christ returns. You see, Paul's going to say, hey, if you really want to know the answer, what happens uh, with the dead and why they have hope, I also have to tell you what happens to the living as well. Because guess what? It goes together. Because this is all one great hope that's actually going to lead to great rejoicing. And So in 15 through 18, we get this picture of what we term as the coming of the Lord or the parousia is actually how it is is the word in the Greek. Which parousia means coming or return. This, this phrase parousia is actually a phrase used during Paul's day to describe a visit from a person of high rank. Especially a king. It would be an unexpected visit from a king. And what Paul is doing here, actually, and I love it, is he actually he's hinting at the truth that the coming of Jesus will be the return of the true King that is greater than Caesar. He's saying, "Hey, Church, man, the reason you have because guess what? One day Jesus is going to return, and man, it's going to be unannounced and unexpected. Uh, and, and guess what? Well, guess what's going to happen? Is man, the true King is going to come. I mean, he's going to be greater than Caesar and any other King." But also I want you to remember the reason that persecution got so bad in Thessalonica was because Christians were proclaiming Jesus as king and Jews and Greeks alike didn't like that. And so what they did is they went to the Roman officials and said, hey, these Christians, they're claiming that someone is greater than Caesar. And guess what they were, but not in the way that the Jews and Greeks were saying. And so we see this, that, that, man, that, that Jesus will come. He will return. And so what happens when Christ returns? And what does it mean for the living and the dead? Well, what we see in the text is that Jesus will descend from heaven at the sound of command, which goes all the way back to Genesis 1 in creation, right? Like, man, when God spoke, what happens? Like the word goes forth. The command happens. In the same way, like when Jesus says, Lazarus, get up, like Jesus speaks the command, like he gets up, and so a command happens, Uh, there's a shout from the archangel, and then a trumpet blast at Christ's return. And then we see that upon this happening, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul says, man, if you're struggling to to believe that actually hope for the dead, hey, guess what, man, guess who gets to, uh, are the first that come, The, the dead are the ones that come with him first. He says, the dead will rise first. What Paul is doing here is he's bringing an answer to their question as to whether or not they have hope. And the answer is a resounding yes. For again, if God did not abandon Jesus to death, he will not abandon them either, Paul says. Rather, they will come with him when he returns. And it says, the dead will rise first. They will receive their resurrected body. And following this, we see that the living He says, those who are left, which I love because guess what? While Paul writes this, like he's one of the living in that moment. And so he's writing and saying, hey, they're coming. But if it happens today or guess what? Tomorrow, he says, guess what? I'm going to like, this is going to happen to me as well. He says, those who are left after the dead rise will be. And then we get this word caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And here we go. Because it's here in the text that things get a bit more difficult to work through. And it's also where a lot of the uncomfort and division begins to arise in the church. Because you see when talking about Christ's return, specifically in the text, what happens is in certain contexts and certain things is we've taken this portion of the text... And we move from the focus for which Paul is writing, which again is to give hope and understanding regarding the dead in Christ. And what happens is all the focus of the text moves from that to this. The focus is placed on self. You see, we've taken a text that is meant to focus on what happens to the dead and solely turned it into what happens to me, myself, and I, specifically when it comes to the meaning of the word caught up. Maybe some of your Bibles have the word rapture in it. And so rapture is actually the English word. It's an English term used by many in the church to define the moment in in which Christ removes believers from the earth before a season or after a season of tribulation. So when we the term rapture is used, and I believe like the word rapture, uh, I'm going to get to it in a moment. The word rapture, like the way it's defined and it commonly is actually not in the scriptures, uh, is a term used in certain contexts to describe that, that God will snatch people out either before or right after a tribulation. For most people, they like the before, right? Like they don't want the tribulation part, and so they say, well, no, it's going to be before that that God's going to snatch us out. This definition, this word, and really kind of the theology behind it, came about somewhere uh, around the late 19th century, uh, following a dream by a 15-year-old girl, uh, to which they took that dream and then they went through the, all of the scriptures and they said, okay, and they built kind of this theology. And, and, and then it came to the States right after that, in the midst uh, proclaiming uh, a theology of escapism that you could kind of get out of hell on earth which was kind of really fitting during this time period because guess what's going on in America? The Civil War. (laughs) What looked like hell on earth. And so, man, people said, no, I want out of this. And, man, if that's going to get me out of it, that's what I'll grab onto. And so it took deep root in, in some American views of eschatology, but for the most part holds very little weight in the church throughout the rest of the world. And again, I believe, and again, open-handed, it's just me, we may disagree, it's okay. Again, I'm just trying to work through, this is what Paul is writing to a specific group of people at a specific time in a specific place. And I don't believe he's talking about escapism here. And that's what I believe that, man, this view at times promotes a theology of escapism that I don't believe the Bible ever teaches. Because I don't believe Jesus taught it. Because guess what? Jesus didn't live that. And man, he says, follow, pick up your cross and follow. He doesn't say, pick up your cross and follow. And then, man, guess what? One day you're going to get to put it down. And, man, it's all going to be hunky-dory. Because I'm going to pull you out before it gets real bad. I don't believe that's what Jesus says. Now, it could be a little wrong in that. But, again, it's open-handed. And so when reading this text, knowing what we know from the letter Paul is writing to a people... That he is calling to be in the now, longing for the future. I believe that what Paul is describing is not a form of escapism, but rather a momentous occasion of hope at the consummation of all things when Christ returns and unites himself first with the dead who rise in resurrected bodies, and then with every living believer being, the the proper word I believe is, is caught up or seized, which is a Greek word that expresses a sudden and violent movement. It's as if, it's as if you're doing one thing and there's a boom, like, it's a, uh, oh wait, like I'm seized by something. I think it's described well in Acts 23 whenever uh, the Roman officials, it says they go and they use the same term. They go to Paul and they grab him and they pull him out and take him because they're going to lynch him. And so for the believer, it is being seized. And reuniting with those who went before them, the dead in Christ, and Christ himself, to meet the Lord in the air. You see, uh, there's one more phrase though, aside from that, that I believe is so key. That that phrase, meet the Lord. It, It brings up one more key piece in the text regarding the notion of Christ's return. The term meet the Lord is a technical term that describes what would happen when a king would visit a city during this time period. So what would happen is if you were a king, you would go out and you would say, hey, it's time for me to go, man, I want to take stock of everything that I own, everything that I have authority over, and so I'm going to head to this city first. And on your way, there would be people that would go out in front of you to declare uh, that you were on your way. And so as you made your way to the city... When when you got outside the gates, before you before you made it in, what would happen is the leading citizens of the city, they, they would go out. It says it, really what happened is they would be caught up. Because guess what? You better be ready when the king is on his way. And so what they would do is whatever they were doing, they would throw it down and they would head out of the city. And they would meet... The king. And then, once they met the king outside the city, they would turn and, and they would enter into the city with him as an escort on the final stage of his journey back. And so what Paul is not saying here is that believers will be removed from the earth for a period of time. Rather, what I believe he's saying is that as believers, when Christ returns, we meet Jesus, again, the true king. And we're going to get into it next week. which says, hey, guess what? You better be ready because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be like a thief and like labor pains. He says that, that we meet Jesus in the air, and then we return as escorts with him as he makes his way back to earth for the final time when he returns and makes all things new. Which leads, once again, to the purpose of all this in the text. And I don't believe it's escapism. I don't believe that what Paul's doing, I believe if you, if you look at the context of the letter, nowhere in here is Paul saying, hey, hold on till you get drug out. No, actually what Paul is saying, he's saying, hey, the gospel is so good that I'm willing to put everything on it and defend from every lie that's spoken about me. Because it is the truth that I stand upon, that I suffer for, that I live for, that I'm willing to die for. And so you do the same. You see what Paul says at the end of this part of the passage, he says, hey, because of this truth, encourage one another in it. We are to courage one another in the now as we long for the future. We are to encourage one another as we grieve for the dead in Christ and oh that we grieve. But we grieve differently because guess what? They have great hope as we do. They're just sleeping. It's encouragement to live in light of this great hope. Knowing that guess what? We'll be with Him. But we're called in the moment. And we're called in the moment to long for the day when He returns. But until then, we are to proclaim this hope to those who grieve without hope so that they might have hope in Christ. And then lastly, guess what? I believe what Paul's saying here is, don't sit back and wait. Long for it. Hope for it. But don't let it consume you in such ways that you stop living life for the kingdom of God. Live life now for Jesus. And so how do we respond to this text? Well, I think the first thing is that, man, for, as believers in Christ, that, that we would grow in our hope and understanding that, man, while death is temporary in terms of our physical bodies, right? Like, man, those who know Jesus, they're with Christ. And one day we will be the same. Whether we pass on or Christ returns, there's hope. Right now, not without grief, but guess what? One day, Jesus is gonna return, and He's gonna, He's gonna, He's gonna come back, He's gonna make all things new. He's gonna, He's gonna cast Satan away forever, destroy Satan, and then, but there's one more thing He does, He says that He destroys death forever. That's the last thing He destroys. There's no more death. And in, in turn, like He wipes every tear away, one by one, boom, boom, you don't have to cry anymore. There's no more death. Hope is here. He's a person and his name is Jesus. So I said that we would have hope next, that that this text would motivate us. But it it would give us motivation for us to proclaim Christ. For he is the only hope in death. And he is the only hope that we have to live and grieve well. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, man, man, your motivation should be to tell others who have no hope, be it in grief or in their eternal hope, where hope lies. I and mean, today, if you, you find yourself, you're like, man, I, I don't have that hope, that you would come to know the hope that's in Christ because He is the only avenue for hope. And then lastly, it would build encouragement, encouragement for us to live today while longing for the return of Christ in the future. For whether we are dead or alive, if we are in Christ, we will be with Him when He returns. May we quit looking for a way to escape. He will return and make all things new. In turn, may we look for ways to proclaim this good news and hope to others. And so I'm going to have the team come forward. And what I want you to do for a moment is just reflect on the hope that you have in your life. Where does your hope lie today? Is it in the present reality of Christ's finished work in your life today? Or is it in uh, kind of that, but it's in a whole lot of things that you're just hoping would come in the future? Man, may we just be satisfied in the hope that we have in Christ. And then may we be motivated that you've prayed today was that because of our hope in Jesus, that, man, that you would even begin to think of people that you know, man, they, they don't have any hope in grief or any hope in life, and that you would proclaim the hope that's found in Jesus. And then that we as a people would encourage one another in the midst of hardship, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of the unknowns, that, man, there is great hope to be found today, and that there's an ultimate hope to be found, that one day we won't deal with this stuff anymore. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. And then the next thing we're going to do is, man, we are going to reflect on the hope that's in Christ. We're going to do that by the sharing of communion. And so the Joneses are going to be up over here, and they're going to have the elements of the bread and the cup. And uh, my wife Haley and I uh, will be over on this side. And, man, we're going to present the elements. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, as you receive the bread and the cup, you receive the reality that Jesus came and that he's... He lived and died and He rose again. And guess what? That He's coming back for His bride. And that that should give us great hope. That that should give us motivation. That should encourage us. And so we're going to share in communion. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and receive the elements and then grab a seat. And what I'll do is I'm going to lead us in the sharing of communion. But today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would ask that you abstain from this, not as a way to cast you aside, but actually we want you to know about the hope of Jesus. To, to receive the hope that is Jesus before you share in this, so you really understand what's going on, because man, his life was costly. Hope cost a lot. It cost him his life. And then after we take the elements, we're going to simply worship together. We're going to celebrate and, and, and cry out in, in humble dependence on Jesus whom we need every moment. So I'm going to pray and then y'all can make your way forward. Those that are presenting the communion, if y'all want to go ahead and come forward as I pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and We thank you for your son. We thank you that you are the God of hope. That when everything looked hopeless, that You stepped in on our behalf and that You fulfilled what we could not so that we might have life, but not simply life for the one day, but life for the now. And God, that as Your people, that 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 we would not seek to to run from or to escape from, but God, that that we would be motivated, knowing that man ultimately we are Yours. And God, that that uh, whether uh, whether we live to live is for Christ, and to die to die is gain, for we are with You. And may we be a people that encourage one another in that reality, as as life happens, as life hits. That we would always be directing one another to the hope that's only found in you. And that would bring great security and peace and love and joy. I ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.